Welcome to the teaching ministry of C4 Church. Well, good morning, C4 family. Really glad that you're here this morning, and we want to welcome the many of you who are watching online this morning. If you're serving this morning and you're not in here, we want to thank you for your service this morning. If you're joining us because you're on shift work or you're driving or you're a snowbird and you're somewhere in Florida, well, we'll bless you, I suppose, because you're getting heat and we're not. Uh, if you're joining us from another community or you're joining us in another country, just we want to welcome you and, and all of you this morning. Uh, to this morning's service. Uh, as Pastor Dave just said, uh, we're back now in the book of John. And so if you've got a Bible this morning, physically or virtually, I'd love you to navigate or turn to John chapter 3, one of the most, if not the most known, of course, passages in the whole of uh, the Bible. It's interesting in the suburbs, but I think it's beyond the suburbs. I think we could say human beings in, in general live in one of two ways, or at least we're pulled in one of two directions. There are many in our culture, in our families, in our life, and maybe this is you or has been you, where you lived life fast and you played hard and you said, maybe I'll die young, but the goal of life is to leave a good-looking corpse. Then there are many other people on the other side who say, no, that's actually not the way to live life. We need to be good and kind. We need to be neighborly. I mean, don't do too much bad. I mean, if you go back and do things you did in high school every once in a while in your 30s and 40s and 50s, that's fine, maybe once a year. But really, life is now about family and work and fun. Yes, you should fill your life with entertainment. And if you can find love, great. And then, of course, there's all the shades of gray in between the two. Be good, be, be bad, be a little of both, be yin and yang. But see, that's actually why the book of John, the gospel of John, if you really take time to, to read it, is so hard for us to actually believe. That is why Jesus' personal words and his life and his teaching and his call are so threatening to everybody. Jesus comes and says to the many in our culture, and some of you this morning, you that believe that life is really about just living for the now, living fast and parting hard. And then he also comes to the good and the kind, uh, the religious, you who are highly Canadian, polite, socially involved in your local school, a good mom or a good dad. Jesus comes and says to all of us, actually, there's no difference between any of you when it comes to meeting God. And immediately our reaction is, excuse me, uh, that's not fair, God. Let me pull out my iPad and show you the list of why I'm better or more significant or not as evil as that person over there. Let me show you the difference. Let me impress you with who I am. See, the hardest thing about Jesus is Jesus the hardest people to bring to Jesus, those that actually find Jesus the most unreasonable are actually good people. Good, moral, kind, nice people. Secular or religious, deeply secular, deeply religious. All of these nice people find Jesus hard to meet and find his call unbelievably offensive when they finally get it. See, Jesus comes on the scene and says being good or kind or, or religious does not allow, does not give you access to God. It, it, it's good things. There's no doubt that God is happy when society runs well. It reflects him too. But when it comes to actually knowing God, when it actually comes to accessing God, when it actually comes to eternal life, none of it matters. See, Canada by a culture, because we're polite people, aren't we? Right? 
We line up at Tim Hortons. We don't bud, right? Go to other cultures, and they're throwing each other aside, and we're like, I don't understand this. This is a line, right? We say sorry when it's not even our fault about everything. Now, we're polite, and we're good people, and we're a good nation, but the interesting mentality of most people is this. Most people in their heart, even many who claim, claim the name of Jesus, believe that God works on some form of scale. That if, if I suddenly die today in a car accident or I die when I'm older, when I face God, if I face God, if you'd hang out with many of your neighbors, they would tell you that they really, at the essence of their world, you believe that some God out there, if he's there and if he cares... He's got a scale out there, and if my good outweighs my bad, then I'm in. Only really bad people are in trouble with God. Hitler is in trouble with God, but not me. Because I'm a good person. I'm a good dad. I'm a good mom. I'm involved in my local school. I give to the United Way. I help older people in my life. Uh, you know, and you can fill in the blank because we are a culture of niceness. Now, that's good. I want to live in a culture of niceness. I don't want to live in a culture of crazy. Don't you agree? But when it comes to eternity, it's a whole different conversation. That is why Jesus' words are offensive. They're so piercing. And actually, what he proposes just seems a little too simple. It's into a situation just like this, into a very good situation, Jesus comes. And I love the scriptures, because don't forget what the scriptures teach. For God so loved the world. God comes to meet everyone, the good people, the great people, the bad people, the terrible people. But he loves hanging out with good people that think everything's okay when it's not. Now, one of the best and strongest stories about being good when everything is lost, all at once, is found in John 3. It starts like this. You can read along with me in John 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees. His name was Nicodemus. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. John, in his unfolding narrative, as we've been doing it as a church, moves us from mass crowds and a temple conflict now just to one person. Most of us read this verse if you've done church for a while, and we keep on going because the description of him is, well, whatever. But actually, the description of him right here actually makes today's understanding and call to believe more powerful, clear, crisp, and convicting. He's called three things. Don't miss it. He's a Pharisee. He's part of Israel's ruling council. And in verse 10, if you read down, he's called Israel's teacher. Now, why does all that matter beyond just sort of understanding the guy's resume? Let me tell you. This man is an amazing man. This is the guy you want at Christmas dinner. This is the guy you want in your family. This is a really good, kind man. And as we're about to see, he does not understand he's in trouble at all. First, he's a Pharisee. Now, if you've done church for a while, you know that Pharisees get a bad rap. There's even songs about you don't want to be a Pharisee. If you're older, you know what I'm singing. But don't miss this. Pharisees were good people. Actually, they were some of the best people. They were viewed as better, more religious, more honest, and more helpful to everyday people. They actually were looked up to. Pharisee, if you don't know what it means, it just means separated one. They were known as lay preachers and scholars. And actually, what's so amazing about the Pharisees were, they were about everyday normal people. These people were the champion of everyday people. They weren't involved with another group that was involved in the elite wealthy, religious, ecclesiology of the day. 
They were among the people. They lived with the people. They loved the people. They weren't above anyone in the sense of not hanging out with them. They were with them. See, when we read the word Pharisee, we go, oh, the people that took on Jesus. But we miss their good people. Their life was amazing. Their life was actually committed to actually obeying God's law. If you look from Genesis to Malachi, the whole Old Testament, they read through it carefully and found every single command that God had said, and they tried their whole life to live every single one of those. Huh. And then what they did is they did something else. They got really concerned because they didn't want to come close to breaking God's law. So they invented something called the oral law. So they invented between 100 and 200 more rules above and beyond God's rules. And the goal was this. If, if do not commit adultery is here, they invented three or four more rules to prevent you from even getting to here. Because they were so concerned that they didn't want you or themselves to break God's law. So these people are serious. But here's the problem. It started leading them to trust in what they did and started trusting in the outward appearance, not inward change. Started leading to subtle pride. Now, ordinary people did not have the time, let alone the inclination, to practice all the above and beyond laws, let alone God's laws. So then spiritual vanity starts to seep in. They started to trust in who they were and what they did, not what God was doing in them. Religion, not regeneration. Religion, not relationship. Religion, not heaven-given rest, becomes their motto. Second, Nicodemus is part of the Jewish ruling council. It's called the Sanhedrin. It was made up of the high priest, the priestly class, and the best scholars and historians of their day. If you took the Supreme Court of Canada and our parliament and then made a Jewish version of the Vatican and put it all together, that's what he was part of, Okay? Interesting, the Sanhedrin 2,000 years ago had authority over every Jew no matter where they lived. So just so you understand the power of this group, this small group of men living in Jerusalem had full authority over every Jew living in Rome. So this guy is not only a Pharisee and he's dedicated his life to loving God and loving neighbor. Not only is this man part of the Sanhedrin, this guy is a serious player politically and religious in the religious scene. In verse 10 he says, he is Israel's teacher. This guy is regarded as one of the best religious teachers of his day. This guy's podcasts were watched in the millions, okay? He's a serious thinker, probably has the version of three PhDs. He's got the inclination of smarts and religion. He's an older man. He's revered. He's a lover of truth. And, oh, don't miss this, he actually likes people. Educated, religious, committed, looked up to. Everyone would point to this man's life and say, look at his giving, look at his teaching, look at his service to us everyday people. That guy, he definitely knows God. He reflects God. He, he understands God. He actually is a model for us. He's a really good guy. I mean, I'm sure God must be so impressed with him. I mean, I'm sure impressed with him. I mean, if anyone knows God, it's Nick. Yet this man is about to come face to face with the God he supposedly represents. This man is about to have a sit-down conversation with God in flesh. Never forget what we learned in week one about Jesus. Never, ever forget this. John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what? Was God. He was with God in, in the beginning. See, Nicodemus is about to say, I know you are from God. He doesn't understand that God is sitting in front of him. 
How nervous would you be if you had spent your whole life being religious and educated about God and suddenly God was sitting there to talk to you about it? By the way, we're all going to have that experience. Just a side note. Verse 2. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. I mean, no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God was not with them. Why did he come at night? Was it fear? Was he trying to guard his reputation? Was he a prominent man that couldn't actually be seen with a man who might threaten the institution he represents? Was he personally seeking? Was he there actually on behalf of other religious leaders so another temple kerfuffle wouldn't take place later? Well, no matter, because we're not told, he comes at night. Notice what he calls Jesus. He calls him rabbi. This is significant. He actually gives Jesus a sign of authority. Rabbis, not just sort of you call this person something. because No, no. It's a sign of authority. And it's highly esteemed. I know you've come from God, he says. I mean, you're the real deal. I see something in you I've, need, and I've never seen somewhere else. I mean, your miracles, the, the way you just go up to people and, and suddenly they're physically like completely restored or people who've been demonized, we haven't been able to help them for years, but you just say leave and, and there's freedom. I mean, it is obvious you're from God. See, the signs and the wonders start the conversation for Nicodemus, not the teaching. He doesn't know he's from God, though, in the true sense. Jesus, his response, we miss, I think, when we read it quick. This great, profound man shows up and, and honors Jesus and calls him rabbi. And Jesus cuts him off in his response and gets straight to the heart of the matter. So you imagine this. It's night. This very highly esteemed man comes. He sits. Jesus is looking at him. And Nicodemus flatters him in the right way. And Jesus, this is what Jesus does in response. Not thank you. Nice to meet you, Nicodemus. Nothing. This is what he says. I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Well, nice to meet you too, Jesus. Now, Jesus says you cannot be part of the kingdom of God unless. If you're a highlighting person, underline unless. This is the key to the door. Now, never forget that kingdom is about reign. It's not about realm. Never misunderstand the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. It's any place or space where God's saving work and lordship is welcomed. It's not Israel. It's not the ancient or modern nation of Israel. It's not the Jewish people. And it is definitely not the church. We are members of the kingdom of God. We absolutely are not the kingdom of God. And he comes along to this man who has spent his life, I want to remind you, teaching about the kingdom of God. And says to Nicodemus, you are not in that space. You are not part of the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Now, born again means a lot of things to a lot of people, right? Yes or no? You see, it. everyone calls themselves born again in the States. At every musical award, I, I laugh. I, I just thank you, Jesus, for, you know, this award. Swear, swear, swear. I want to thank you, Jesus. I'm born again. I slept with five people. Praise the Lord. You're like, what's going on? I'm, I'm totally lost. Born again has become a lost thing. Born again in Greek actually is translated born from above. Very significant. And he says to Nicodemus, you must be born in a radical new fashion, a second birth that comes from heaven. Think about it. I was shocked about this because I'd never reflected on it. Birth is not something we do ourselves. Have you thought about that? We don't conceive ourselves. 
We don't get ready even for our own birth. It's our mother's body who says, now it's the time, or the doctor. Our existence and our physical birth is the decision of other people. So it's the same in Scripture. Salvation is a God deal. He starts the process. He brings us to life. He gives us faith. He gives us relationship. It's gift from start to finish. It's all miracle. Salvation is another stepping in to make us exist. Nicodemus, he says, you think that you're part of the kingdom of God, don't you? Here's the underlying idea. Because you're a Jew. Uh, Because you have scripture. Because you're religious, because you're just actually a good guy, because you've done lots with your life that actually has helped society, not gone against society. Hold on, just one question for you, my, my older scholar friend. Have you been born from above? The words would have sat in the air. Nicodemus' response is telling, either he does not get Jesus or he's sort of offended, so he tries changing the conversation in a different direction. He basically says to Jesus, look, this is crazy. This is ludicrous. Verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. He's not buying what Jesus is selling. He says, look, everyone wants to start over, don't we? Everyone wants a second chance. Every person would love to hit the stop button and go back to the beginning and live life just a little differently or avoid certain situations or walk somewhere else. Why? Because now we're living on the other side of experience. And Nicodemus is basically saying, look, I'm a person full of wishes and hopes and fears, good and bad. I've spent my whole life doing stuff like you. But here's the difference. If physical birth is impossible... If I can't go back and start over again, then what you're proposing is absolutely impossible. If physical birth can't really happen, if I can't start over life in a new way, in a fresh way, what you're proposing, really? You're really saying we get a real second chance at this run? I'm not sure I believe it. Jesus' answer to tell you the truth, the King James, verily, verily, this is the uh uh-oh moment, pay attention. No one, underline that. No one enters the kingdom of God. No one enters the kingdom of God unless he or she is born of water and of the Spirit. Water and Spirit, what does this mean? A lot of people talk about this. It brings confusion uh, to a lot of people. Let me just break it down for you. A lot of people think that this is talking about Christian baptism. See, you're baptized as a Christian. You say yes to Jesus. You get the Spirit. The problem is, does the church exist yet? Yes or no? Yes or no? No. So it's not Christian baptism. Then people say, well, maybe it's John's baptism, John the Baptist's baptism, because he was baptizing in water, but it wasn't actually about the baptism. It was about the heart of the baptism, which was repentance. So you need to repent, which water symbolizes, and then you receive the Spirit. I could buy that. But what we miss is the everyday allegorical language of scholars of the time. See, it would be like in 120 years from now, us going to another church service if Jesus isn't coming back, And they're reading some of our stuff, and someone talks about Facebook, and they go, what's that? We don't describe it, we just say Facebook. People go, what is that? I don't know, it's some weird thing where they were friends somewhere. But they don't get it because they're not there. Well, when you see water connected to birth, the idea for a Pharisee, or the rabbis was, water was connected to semen, or sperm. It's the idea of conception. All the time throughout the oral traditions, they will use the word water to either talk about the sack of water we all sat in before we were born, right? The water breaks, or they use it as semen to talk about contraception. Not contraception, no. Conception. 
different. They did not practice contraception. Oh, my phone is ringing. All you online have no clue what I'm talking about. It's all good. It's like David Letterman. You've got to be here sometime. So he gets around and he says, look, you have to be physically born and spiritually born. That's what he's saying. You have a physical birth, water, and you have a spiritual birth. That's why the next verse says it like this. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. In other words, there is no evolution from flesh to spirit. You cannot, in yourself, you do not have the power, you, the power of religion or good works or education, psychology, science, theology, being a really nice mom or dad in a family, that's all great, but it does not allow you to meet God personally. It does not allow you to be in right relationship with God. It takes divine intervention. I love what Chuck Swindoll said. He said, religion is man-made. Religion is of the physical realm. Impressive on earth is rubbish in heaven. Jesus that night under the stars looks at a man by the way that he made. This very good, sincere person you would want and I would want in our lives. And he says, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. That's a little, that's pretty brutal. He's like, you, you should know this. You've got the Old Testament. This is talked about. The bomb is beginning to drop. Don't miss the offense of Jesus. Don't miss the call of Jesus to this good, moral, kind, religious person. No one, no one can experience the reign of God. No one can have a relationship with God, no matter their history, their race, their acts of any sort. All your theological learning, all your spiritual insight, all your doubts, uncertainties, wishes, hopes, fears, habits, they will never gain you entrance. They're not all evil, Nicodemus. Actually, many of them are good, but you have put them in the wrong place. They will not save you. Jesus says, Nick, you, you know God's will. I mean, if there's anyone on earth, you've got it. You know the Ten Commandments. You know the Torah, the prophets, Genesis, and Malachi. You've learned this from childhood. You know who God is. You can discern right from wrong, so you're better, right? You think that you're far beyond the ignorant masses of non-Jews and some Jews who worship idols and demons, and because you're a Jewish man, and I know you've been circumcised, and you've got God's mark on your outside, you're better than everyone else, right? No. No person knows God if they trust in what they do, because they can't do it all the time. God is perfect and demands perfection. You need heaven to come change your heart because your best efforts, Nicodemus, will never cut it. You need heaven to step in. Let me put it a different way for our community this morning. I love when you travel the world how different cultures have similar stories, children's stories or allegories. Chicken Little, is that the one where the sky is falling? Is that it? Yeah. Uh, there's a version of this uh, over in, in the Middle East. And it's their version of Chicken Little. But it gets home to the point. It says that a young Arab man who was traveling along the road on his donkey came upon a small fuzzy object lying on the ground. He dismounted to look closely and found it was a sparrow lying on its back with its scrawny legs thrust upward. At first he thought it was dead, but at closer investigation it actually proved that the bird was very much alive. So the young man asked the sparrow, are you all right? The sparrow responded, yes, I'm fine, thank you. The young man said, well, what are you doing lying on your back in the middle of the road with your legs pointed towards the sky? The sparrow responded he had heard a rumor that the sky was falling, so he was putting up his legs to support it. In response, 
The young man rightly said, you surely don't think you're going to hold up the whole sky with your two scrawny legs, do you? And the sparrow, after a very solemn look, retorted, one does the best he can. Now, we laugh or go, that's stupid, but that is the best image of religion or being good. See, the sky isn't rumored that it's falling. It's falling, everyone. There's a holy God who's coming back to judge everyone because we walked away from him. And he desperately does not want to bring judgment. He wants to bring restoration. He is not the object, nor is he the starting point of judgment. We are. We rebelled. And suddenly we believe in our human arrogance that our scrawny lives and legs can hold up what's coming. We think that we're going to face the holy God of heaven and earth that has created all, who is eternal, everlasting light, whom every angel worships, and we're going to face him mouth to mouth, eye to eye, face to face, and say, but God, don't you know how good I was? Scrawny legs. Scrawny legs. Nick, do you understand what you're saying? The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going. So does everyone who's born of the Spirit. To the ancient, wind was mysterious, and so suddenly it would appear, and that's the point. God shows up in a life, and suddenly everything that was not clear is clear, because God shows up suddenly, unexpectedly. How can this be, Nicodemus asked, verse 10, you're Israel's teacher, Jesus said. How do you not understand these things? The penny drops again. He's pulling out everything, philosophy, theology, his religious background. Everything has taught him and told him that being good enough and righteous enough will continue to maintain or at least access relationship. And Jesus is saying, no, no, you've missed this. It's faith first, action later. Faith faith first, then action. Good works come after being part of the kingdom of God, not before. I tell you the truth. We speak what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but still you people don't accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who's come from heaven, the Son of Man. Listen, Nick, you and I both know no one's ever gotten to heaven by themselves. They haven't physically gotten up there. I mean, it was Lucifer's problem. He tried doing this, and he was thrown down. And then there was that Babel incident where we were stupid enough, you know, we thought we could build a tower, and God said, I don't think so, kids, and, you know, gave us language. You, you think you're different? See, you can't access heaven. But, oh, here's the one moment. Uh, my authority, just so you know, comes from heaven. I have more authority than you, more authority than the books you've written, more authority than the books you've written and read. I have more authority than the temple. Actually, I have more authority than the scriptures. See, humans can't physically ascend into heaven, but God, God could come down and be among us and become a man. And see, Nick, that's what I'm saying. And just in case you're missing what I'm trying to tell you, I am the son of man now at that moment this would have become very serious Nicodemus is a living Old Testament expert he knows exactly what the son of man phrase means it comes out of the book of Daniel Daniel had a profound vision of the one who would come to make all things right let me read you the description of the son of man from Daniel seven thirteen. in my vision the prophet wrote at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming out of the clouds of heaven He approached the ancient of days, was led into God's presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign 
power, and all peoples and all nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away. And oh, notice, his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Nicodemus is looking at a 30-year-old, uneducated, backwater Galilean, and this young guy is looking at a living expert, and he looks him in the eyes and says, just so you get this, Nicodemus, I'm the one Daniel predicted. Worship is going to happen towards me. I can walk into God's house without ever fear. Why? Because I am one with him. And oh, if you're missing this, my kingdom is his kingdom. The kingdom you are concerned about, I own. As he's about to speak, I'm sure, Jesus just keeps going. He says, before you deal with Daniel, let me give you another response. He says in verse 14, just as Moses also lifted up a snake in the desert, so the man ha- son of man has to be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Now, many of us read this and we have no clue what's going on because as Christians, we don't read enough of our Old Testament. By the way, if you want to think like a Christian, you have to think like an Orthodox Jew. We worship a Jewish God. We worship a Jewish Messiah. We are engrafted into their movement. Just so you know, know your Old Testament and Jesus will come alive to you. Side note. Very important. And so he says, oh, do you remember the Moses incident? Some of you are going, snakes, what's going on? Read it. It's in Numbers 21. They, they got exited out of Egypt. And they're traveling along, and then suddenly the implications of freedom fall upon the Israelites. They grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the desert? Because you people asked for it, side note. And then they say there's no bread, there's no water, and this this food is is miserable. Uh Uh-oh. The Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many of them died. Then the people came back to Moses and said, we've sinned when we've spoke against the Lord and spoke against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and this is what the Lord told him to do. Take a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can just look upon it and they'll live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by one of these snakes just looked at that bronze snake and they lived. Here's the point. All they had to do for salvation was look, and they would not die. Nicodemus, look up. Look up. Stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at your ethnicity. Stop pulling out your resume. Stop thinking you're okay. You have to look beyond yourself or your community. You have to look up at someone else. You need to look at me. As those people were bitten and as their fevers grew and they were about to die, as they looked up at that snake, they were instantaneously healed. So if you look at the Son of Man, when he is lifted up, you will not just be healed physically, you will be healed eternally. Look up and you will be saved. It only takes a look. Can you imagine how threatening this is to Nicodemus? Everything he spent his life doing is wrong. Everything he hoped for was off. It's not saying he was a bad guy. It wasn't saying much of he did what he did wasn't good or not. The point is, though, he was trusting in good things. And when you trust even in good things and put them in front of God, they become idols and they bring death. See, Jesus' point to Nicodemus is summarized this way. He's telling him that new birth 
comes through a simple gaze of faith, not a perfect faith built by you. At this point, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus fades away. John moves from one person back to the whole world. And basically, John starts speaking to all of us. He reminds us, basically, behind the scenes that the alienation that we all experience from God, the hiddenness we experience is because we have sinned. And yet, here is the amazing thing. Jesus chooses to enter back in and to sit eye to eye with us as he did with Nicodemus to give him a second radical chance. See, we've been hiding our whole lives and we hide through wild living or really good living or just not even thinking about God's existence from religion to just being nice and everything in between. It all promotes hiddenness when you're running from God. But Jesus shows up to the world just like he does at Nicodemus. Here's the Christmas story and looks us mouth to mouth, eye to eye and says, I've come to give you a chance again. See, Jesus is God's word, God's last word, and we have the great opportunity, listen closely, to not hide again and to be free from hiding, or the opportunity, the other choice, is to become entrenched in our hiding and to have that become our experience forever. Do you know what hell is? It's not being in the presence of God. It's being hidden from every human being and every God, ever, from God himself forever. Hiddenness is hell. For God so loved the world, John says, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever will come and believe on him will not die but have everlasting life. What Jesus has just said to Nicodemus is given to the world. It's given to the world, and he comes and he says, if you look up and put your trust and believe in him and him alone, salvation will come. You will not die but have everlasting life. See, God desires us to be saved. God did not start the conversation about rebellion. We did. Religion promotes a God, by the way, that appears loving, but is not loving. Because the fuel for religion is the fear of a sadistic God who enjoys destroying people. I must please, please him. I have to make sure I'm okay. Because I know that I know that I know in my heart that God really is fickle and he likes hurting people. That's the heartbeat of religion. Christianity cries out, no, our God is love. Our God is love. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not stands condemned already because he or she has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict Light has come into the world, but men and women love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Even their good works, much of their motives are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light because they'll be, they're afraid they'll be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plain that what he has done, notice this, has been done through who? Say it, God. It's God. See, the reason why we claim Jesus is the only Savior is because he's the, actually the only one who's come from heaven. If you trust in anyone else or anything else other than Jesus for abundant life and eternal life, you have to replace Jesus. These solemn words forever exclude and forever remove the possibility that salvation is ever given by human merit. You will be forever removed. You will be forever hidden from God. That is, you will be condemned if you choose to trust, believe, hope in, or have confidence in any other leader, any other worldview, or yourself, or any other thing or action other than Jesus. Why? Because he's the only one that's come from heaven. 
Jesus says to the world, you must be born again. Since born again has become a weird word, you must be born, be born or reborn from above. Like I preached in the very first week of our Believe series, believing does not mean you think Jesus existed. Believing doesn't mean that you thought a guy named Jesus was out there or you admire him or you take up his cause or you want to be like him or you give money towards him or you have warm feelings around song three and four towards him. No, no. Believing at its heart is where you say, Jesus, I actually now know you. I have met you. I have trusted in you. I've put my complete confidence in you. Everything I know about life, whatever happens just before my death, at my death, and after my death depends on you. That's what it means to believe. And what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus is so important because notice what he says, to be reborn from above, to enter the kingdom of God, you have to accept the messenger. Jesus says he is the son of man and he deserves worship. He's the son of man and all nations will worship him. He declares that he's the only son of God. Not one son of God, not one of many. He's the only son of God. He is savior and God in flesh. If you can't even have that conversation with Jesus, you can't go any farther. He says you have to trust in the work of Jesus. You have to look up at him being lifted up and that's how you will be saved. The call of Christianity is the cross where Jesus himself dies in our place and rises in our place. And when we come to meet the living God of heaven and earth, we look at him, not at ourselves, not at our parents, not at our ethnicity, and we say, I trust in that alone. When I die, it would be ludicrous for me to say, but God, I was a pastor. But God, I have a doctorate. Really? But God, don't you know I tried loving my three children so well? God, you know, I really gave. You really think that gains entrance? No. All our Christian works are done to love God after he's loved us, not the opposite way. The call of Jesus is not only to accept him and to trust in his work, the call of Jesus also is to follow after him. If you say that you are born again, please listen. If you say that you are born again and you are reborn from above, that you've confessed Christ and you've trusted in him and your life has not changed, then you are not born from above. You have to see life change. The good works are evidence of the relationship being there, not the opposite. And so Jesus comes to a good, kind guy. I'm sure he was a good dad, a great husband, a great thinker. And he says, what will be more important to you at this moment, Nicodemus? Pride or freedom? Let it sit. Many of us here are good people. We're kind people. We're religious people. We're Canadian Many of our neighbors are really good. Actually, many non-Christian neighbors are way nicer than some of you. Hmm. You know it. Please hear this this morning. When Jesus shows up and he comes and says, all that you have done will never gain entrance. The option is pride or acceptance. See, if you choose to actually bring your pride down, this is the best news you've ever heard in your life. Why? Because then you go, what a relief. There's no burden anymore. I, I mean, I just, I get to know him by simply gazing upon, really? It's too simple, is it? No, it's not. And you suddenly go, oh, freedom. 
I don't have to do good things anymore to prove myself. I do good things because I just love him because he loved me first. That is freedom. But if pride becomes your God, you will stand before God himself, even on judgment and day, and you will say, it's not fair. I did good things. And you're saying they should have lesser value. And no, they should have more value. Pride is the dividing line for the best of people because the best of people have to realize that they still need saving. I want to end my message before I give a call with another story, another video story that we have here. You can watch it online. Just click the box, I think, by the sermon. You can watch it. This is a story of a person in our church. This person is a good person. This person was a good person, as good as you can be, for their whole life. They're now in their mid-60s, and they met Jesus just a few years ago. And I want you to hear the story because I want to encourage you that Jesus is still transforming all sorts of Nicodemuses all around us. And I want you to think about people in your life, or maybe yourself, who needs a story. Watch this and be encouraged.
I think uh, we want to thank you. By the way, Kelly, thanks for sharing that story. See, Kelly, to me, is the grand example of Durham. Um, we have deeply religious people in our communities and very nice secular people, but it's the same deal. The common bond they have is good, but not eternal. And so um, here's my encouragement two ways today. Number one, keep telling people about the good news of Jesus. Sit them across the table, eye to eye, face to face, and share this good news. Don't let fear stop you from sharing that maybe what they think is happening isn't happening. Because uh, I love this. You know, in church it used to say most people became Christians under 18. I love that in this church people are becoming Christians of all ages and stages, don't you? Like, it's just so good. So it's so awesome. And... Uh, and I think what he just said is, is significant to us. And so I want to encourage you to do that. I also want to say that um, as I was praying for this community this week, I, I was led to pray that um, for some people here that actually probably are Nicodemus. Uh, you are deeply religious and kind and good. But you are not a follower of Jesus for real. Just before I was going to get up and preach, one of the scriptures that was given as a potential word for our church, but actually I think it's a word for some of you individually, is this. It comes out of 2 Corinthians 6.2. God says, in, in the time of my favor, I've heard you. In the day of, of salvation, I've helped you. I tell you now, now is the time of God's favor, and now is the day of salvation. And so I want to pray a moment before we sing, and I'd like to ask God to speak to some of you to tell you if you actually are Nicodemus. Good, kind, religious, but you do not, you've not been born again. You online, the same thing. So let's pray and let's see what he does. God of heaven and earth, as you love Nicodemus so much, you weren't angry at him, you deeply cared about him. And you sat across a table or, I don't know, and shared passionately about how you wanted to know him. I pray in Jesus' name that if any person among us here online is Nicodemus, good, kind, trying to live a good life, polite, and even religious, but they don't know you, Holy Spirit, I pray you tell them right now. Tell them that's them. If that's you and you know it, then this verse is given to you, that today is the day of salvation where you move from being nice to being saved. <laughs> so pray this prayer. Jesus... I lay down religion, family, work, money, school, all the things I've trusted in. I say you are the Son of Man, the Son of God, Savior, God in flesh. Forgive me for living my whole life trusting in me or my family or others. I look to you now, just to you, and I say forgive me. I accept your work. I ask you to heal me and I will follow you wherever you take me. Lord, redeem all the good stuff I've done. Thank you for some of it, but now may it be done for you and not for me. Come get me because I can't do this myself anymore. In the name of Jesus, I pray this. Amen. Lord, we pray for those people that have prayed that, that they now grow in their faith, they connect to community, and that they, just like the video we saw, would have new life and hope in them. 
And for the rest of us, I pray in the name of Jesus that we would trust and know their name. I pray we would not be seduced and trusting in ourselves again. And I pray, God, that you would empower this church by the Holy Spirit to go out to the many good and kind neighbors we have and tell them that though we love them and that they're good, there's more things to take place. Spirit of God, fill the hearts, minds, mouths, and tongues of this church to proclaim the good news across Durham. We ask this in the name of the Father again who calls people, the Son who lovingly dies and talks to people, and the Spirit who brings Jesus into our life. In the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, let's stand and sing to that Jesus who is with Nicodemus. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to know more about C4, get connected to the life of the church, or give to the ministry, visit our website at www.c4church.com. 